Welcome to Meaningful Journeys, a podcast about pilgrimage. I'm Dr. Heather Warfield, and I am passionate about connecting humanity through our shared quests for meaning. In this podcast, I'll be talking with pilgrims and pilgrimage scholars. I will have conversations with people impacted by both ancient and contemporary pilgrimage journeys, and we will also hear from people who live at these sacred sites. This program is supported in part by Antioch University New England and the Meaningful Life Institute. In this episode of Meaningful Journeys, I talk with Anya Bakker, a harpist and pilgrim who has walked hundreds of miles over multiple pilgrimage journeys. I started our conversation by asking her about playing her harp along the Camino de Santiago pilgrimage route. From the time that you decided to to go on the pilgrimage with your harp, it was about three months and then you were um, you you set off on the pilgrimage to Santiago. Yeah. What were the experiences that you had as a harpist? How did you incorporate? Was so? Um, I I heard you say that you had uh, you had been a walker and and used walking um, as a as a form of healing and therapy um, for many years, and then that translated into your pilgrimage. Um, so I'm wondering about how how you merged the the practice of walking that was already familiar to you with playing the harp at the same time on the pilgrimage route. Well, I, I was familiar already with the the work of uh, of of healing harps and you know the green emerald and 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 those which was already you know I, I think that starts in the noughties where people are starting to use music in dementia wards and. Uh, end of life harp is very well known in the Irish tradition. They would say that um, the harp, the the original harp, like the Bible harp, has thirty two strings, of which one is a double one, which is in the lowest octave. Um, and those strings are all made of different types of ore because they all represent the different uh, the different beings and the different spirits that hold heaven and earth together. So in that sense, the the recorder was always my preferred instrument because it's so honest. You cannot, we cannot live without breathing and a recorder, whatever breath you put through it, it will make a sound. And with the harp, the same thing, the wind goes through the strings and it will play you a melody. Uh, But anything that seems deceptively easy therefore must be deceptively hard (laughs) because then the mastery is the manipulation of what happens next or in this case I would see it as uh, the the opportunity to let every every gathering speak so the harp was came along first and foremost as a buffer between me and people because I'm quite I, I can be really social and I can talk forever, <laughs> but I'm not necessarily good with people and the harp helps there because then I don't have to speak. It also allows for people to just be who they are so that we're not hindered by all the opinions that people have or the help that people want to give or things that people want to say. It, the sound holds the space. And my job then would be to read that space and reflect it back to those who would be there. And that, of course, that is a journey in itself because it becomes dependent on who you meet. So there is the... um, (laughs) Just before I came to Dublin, I think it was day 14 that I was walking on the... Towards, because I walked from home I always walk from home. That's kind of one of the rules I drew up was that if I was going to do this, I was going to go from home because I I wanted to experience, uh, to me, the pilgrimage is uh, the experience of going from wherever you are to that place where you are called to be or you feel you need to go whatever way you'd like to fill that in. I, I think in the end of the day, it's all the same thing. Everybody who goes on a pilgrimage 
you know, you could say go to Berlin or go to Paris. No, all these people head to the same places. I'm not even asking why. I'm just noticing that they all head to those same places. So whether somebody told them to or gave them that idea, in the end of the day, every single one of us is being called to that place. <laughs> same thing. Um, and my job would be to hear the stories along that road and to reflect those who, because there is no such thing as a coincidence, you will meet those who, you will, who need you there or who you need to meet and they will teach you the lesson and that's the way you go on. So, yeah. How do you decide what you are going to play and when and for whom while you're on the pilgrimage? I learned, um, I, had, I had a bass repertoire of about two hours and I think that distilled into a 40 minute thing where it would be very much literally uh, be very much where you look at who is there and the things that have been said and that's how you make the choice. So it would be completely random. And what I was hoping to accomplish during the first pilgrimage was to, to play as much um, as much from memory, because initially that was not as easy as I thought it was going to be. And, and then after that, really looking for improvisation. And the improvisation never really took off the first, the first trip, but I did end up with a distilled 40 minute set of material that I could mold and shape in such a way that it would either go from low to high or from high to low or have a peak in the middle and I'd, I'd be reading, I'd have to read the room doing it. Were you performing uh, out outdoors uh, on the trail or in albergues or in all of all of these places? The, the commitment was to play every day and that didn't that didn't always happen. Um, and it would have it would have to be by instinct. So uh, one one thing of being a pilgrim without without a lot of funds because I had I had no money to do this. That was another reason for me to harp along, because initially I thought busking would be great, but that never happened. It actually never worked that way. What would happen was that the visual of the harp. It's not logical because I, I carry the harp upside down and people would ask me, what are you doing? I'd say, I'm on pilgrimage. Uh, well, what's what's in the bag? It's, it's a harp, you know, but it's up there and right down to the hips. And they go like, no, there's no harp in that bag. Yes, there is a harp in that bag. Well, where are you staying? Where are you playing? I don't know, would you like to come with us and we will give you a space to play and you can come and stay with us. And that would happen 80% of the time, let's say. So it, so it becomes part of your spiel of getting from one place to another. So it's a, it's a double thing. <laughs> it's, it's a calculated thing where you use what you know, what you have. And on the other hand, you have to decide whether these are the people that you're supposed to meet, yes or no. And that, that is where it all becomes very muddled and in the middle of, of a journey that is extensive. So where you go over a month, I think, or a month and a half, it, it became blurry what was what, you know, whether I was meeting these people because I was carrying the harp. And especially when I came into Spain itself, like through France, felt very authentic. I would sit down in a, in a graveyard or in a park or whatever, and people would come up and, and speak to me. And then I had a bad experience in Britannia somewhere. And it kind of shook me because I, I knew, I knew when the person who approached me, I knew there was something that was a bit off, but I was really tired. And so, and obviously it was the lesson I had to learn was that I, you have to be really, you have to really, really mind yourself all the time. And sometimes it's better to just sleep out. And I had a beefwork bag and a sleeping bag with me. So there was no need for me to go look, looking for lodgings apart from when I needed water or electricity. Um, yeah, and that wasn't, that wasn't great. And I nearly, I nearly, I nearly went home. 
But then I realized that that was all that that was. It was a warning. Nothing really serious happened, but it was within the parameters of the stuff that I was talking about, the things I was doing. I could have made a better choice and I never made that mistake again. So, um, but yeah, I met a nun once sitting in a graveyard who thought that, an end, that the end of times had come. Uh, I was hosted by a man who had just opened a chapel to St. James in, in Bretagne, and he sent me on to meet a man uh, in the Moulin Ayon, which is at the end of Bretagne, uh, who told me his story of when he was 19 and he went to Santiago and then Rome and ended up going to Jerusalem. And his story inspired what happens after the Camino because I, I end up I end up doing the Spanish bit as well and being overwhelmed by by the pilgrims because I I didn't think it was anything. I thought it was just me and my mind with these stories in my head. And then I come to Spain and it was holy year. And there were thousands of people walking and it was just, and then you know how the bicycle, the cyclists come by and the story gets out and it was crazy. It was crazy. I was playing every day, I was talking every day <laughs> and I got really down about it because that was not the intention of that trip. The, the trip was about me reflecting about my, what I'd gone and what was coming and I ended up in this mouth stream about a woman carrying a harp <laughs> through the through the Pyrenees but when I when I ended up in Santiago I realized that really the Camino was only the beginning and that I would have to go back home and do it again and go to Rome and then go back home and do it all again and go to Jerusalem <laughs> so yeah. How did, how was the experience for you uh, transitioning between being a pilgrim and being an entertainer uh, that people were seeking out to to hear you play, to hear you speak? And then suddenly it seems like your experience is about their pilgrimage and maybe not about your pilgrimage, especially the first time. How yeah. did you cope with that? Oh, this is an ongoing journey. I think it is. Uh, um, now I can't think of myself anymore as anything else but the woman who carries a heart because I, I definitely the first time around, I didn't realize how epic it actually is because it's a little bit insane and the numbers are crazy. <laughs> they are actually kind of crazy. And I'd never looked at it like that. I went to do this because that's what I felt was the right thing to do. And it ended up, I ended up being a, at the end of the Camino, I, I felt like a caricature. Uh, in, initially, I got really angry. <laughs> uh, uh, in France, it was in, in, in Ireland and France, it was fine. Uh, and then when I, when I started meeting all those pilgrims, because there was a sense of ownership as well, because you have the, the groups of pilgrims that form. And I wasn't there. I had never thought about this whole Camino social experience. It ends up that, um, who plays again in the Sheen, he ended up doing a film set in Ireland afterwards for a movie. And he ended up in a place where I had walked through and they were saying, they, he, he walked into the pub and he said something like anything interesting happened here lately and he went like yeah we had this woman come through with a harp on her back heading to Santiago and he went like I'm, I was just there shooting the way like and I don't know like I I didn't like it very much I, I was I got really upset in the beginning because I had never thought of it as being a public statement or a, um, you know the, the I, I did I, Spain had not been on my mind when I left Ireland because it was very much about what was happening personally and on the island where I lived. And then I end up in Spain with all these people who are on pilgrimages, forming bonds and having experiences together. And I've been on the road for three and a half months. All I want is a shower at the end of the day. And I've, I've had enough by the time I get to Spain. I just want to go home and I realize, okay, I'm strong enough, so I might as well finish it. And of course I meet people, you know, there is a core group of people that I still speak to. 
but th that was hard. And I went home and it, fin it, felt, it felt a little bit dirty. And I really had to think about it long and hard afterwards. And I went with a different, I went with a different view the time after I held my own space better. When I went to Rome, I, it wasn't anymore, you know, that I, I went like, okay, I will pay for anybody who asks nicely, <laughs> but nicely had to be part of that because uh, at the end of the Camino, it was four times a day, people would go like, ah, yeah, you play as a tune, you know, you with your guitar. And I just was like, oh, no, I don't want to. So Rome, the Via Francesca was, was friendlier to me in, in, in a way as well, because it was, it's not as busy. Italy is busy. The Italians are just very different, I suppose. And they were very, they were somehow prepared for when I came over the Alps, they had already decided there, there had already been talk about where are we going to let this woman play? You know, and they had churches lined up. And when I arrived in Rome, I got invitations and it was, it was a whole lot more civilized. Uh, but I, you know, and I, and I made a point out of uh, picking certain places and saying, I really would like to play in these places, like the Cathedral of Rams and what is it, Long, and there were a few other places where I kind of went like, yeah, no, that would be great. And I couldn't get permission to play in Canterbury, but I could play outside, which was fine as well. And the big dream, of course, was to play in the Sistine Chapel. And the other place I had pinpointed was the Papal Gardens. And then it ends up that I arrived in Rome the day that the Pope is in Ireland, he was in Dublin and I was, I had arrived in Rome. And then two days later, he arrived back and there was no way, all of a sudden, everything goes crazy in Rome again. And all the, there was no way they would let me into the Papal Gardens. But I did get permission to sing in the Sistine Chapel, but the harp was not in, was not allowed in because of security reasons. So. so how was this coordinated uh, where people knew that you were on your way? Was, was that something that you did on your website or you put this on social media? What I did, okay, so the thing that I couldn't do the first pilgrimage was social media. It, it kind of was out of my league. I didn't, have, uh, I didn't have a mobile phone. I didn't have a smartphone in 2010. And it was something that I, actually I kind of regret because that would have been amazing in 2010. Uh, and I, I realized that one, there was no real um, record of anything that I had done. So I had said to my daughter, what I'll do is I'll do a daily update on Facebook because I'm of that age. Most of the people that I deal with, they're on Facebook. And I said, you can do with whatever. So I did daily updates uh, on Facebook. Uh, and, and I think initially it was in the morning, most of them are in the mornings, and I, I wanted to do two a day, like at the beginning of the day and the end of the day, that never happens, because the end of the day is always, is hustling, you have to hustle to find your place to stay, because I, I, I am, I'm one of those funny pilgrims that doesn't book anything in advance, <laughs> you know, I just show up, I learned this from, and there was, I met this Italian pilgrim who, who had been a brother and he said to me, that's the way to do it. Like you have to just go to church, you arrive at six o'clock mass and then you hustle your way in and they'll give you a bed, they have to, you're gonna be fine. So yeah, and I did it on the Camino the same way. Like I would, I would just show up because the whole point in the end, the, the longer I walk, the more I understand that it really is about everything. I would get up every morning and say, St. James, thank you very much for the bed. Thank you very much for the shower. Thank you for the food. Now for today, I would love a piece of cake. I love a bed. And can I have a bath tonight? And, you know, open the road before me. I will walk. You need to do the rest of the work. And that's, that was the deal. You know, if it's important, let me do, let me go. And uh, I mean, I think I slept out maybe seven days out of 157 in the last trip and maybe 20 in the one before that. You know, it's, it's really 
I, I don't know if it's true for everybody, but I think that if you really let go, this is just true. The, the universe will take care of you. Like, but all you got to do is you make, you make the commitment to go and do this. You need to go then, you need to go do it and you need to let it happen and unfold. And every time you get this feeling of anxiety, that's when you will be in your beefy bag, in the rain, next to the road. That's just the way it goes, you know. And if you don't have that anxiety and you get stuck somewhere, you don't understand why, then you'll know in a few hours time when you meet the person who goes like, I've been waiting for you. And, it, you know, that didn't happen to me once. It happened to many, 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 many times. Yeah. How has, uh, how well, how have all of the pilgrimage experiences impacted your faith um you're talking about praying to saint james and also talking about letting letting go of uh of ideas about how you think things should go and so that sounds to me like it's very much in the realm of of faith or spirituality yeah i i wonder about this very often obviously like the uh the way i speak about those type of experiences are in, in religious terms because that is the only vocabulary I have for it. I don't have another vocabulary for it. So, you know, but I, I would always say, I walked with uh, Michel from Reims to Pavia and uh, he walked, he was walking because he was widowed. His wife died of cancer and he was a very religious man. Before she died, they used to go to church every Sunday. And after she died, he just turned around and said to the priest, listen, it's all bogus. It must be all bogus because if God knew what was good, he would never have taken her, you know, and I understand the statement. I also understand that's not how it works. But for him, that was his experience. And we climbed into the Alps and uh, I'm standing in this field and it was like the strangest experience. The air was very thin and there were all these black cows with these massive horns and these bells going clung, 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 and these cows going moo. And I'm going, oh my God, we're in a Buddhist Zen temple at the top of the Alps. Oh my God. I said, there you go. Can you feel it? And he goes, what? I said, there it is. I don't have another word for it. Call it God, call it whatever. But there it is, can you feel it? And he goes, I don't believe in God. I only believe in the word of Christ. Because <laughs> he tells you to love your neighbors. This God business is nonsense. All I know, I don't know, I don't know, if, I, I don't think it's about who is right or who is wrong. All I know is that we are not God. We have the capacity to godliness. We're part of all of this. And these pilgrimages, when we get the opportunity to, to let go, you know, because even on many pilgrimages, people still don't get the opportunity to let go. It, it, it's it's a privilege to be able to be to be there and to have those experiences um because it's i don't think it is for everybody but it it's amazing to be there to have you know to have to have your body function at its best climbing into a place that high and having that view over the world and knowing that you're part, not only are you part of it, you're looking at it and it's all part of us. It's unbelievable. There's miracles everywhere every day and we can't see them because most of the time it, they're obscured by society and the lives that we choose to live and you'd really wonder why we would choose to live them the way we do because it's, unbelievable to go out there and for me it's been unbelievable to carry 20 kilos and do 20 to 30 kilometers a day and eat all the food along the way and sleep in all these places meet all these people and get to play harp for them and then telling them me their stories where 
they're from and often they're they've seen thousands of people like me pass by it's mind-blowing <laughs> it's mind-blowing how as a as a musician um you just were talking about the bells and the sound of the cows and i was thinking about that interplay with what you're hearing and you're also giving sound i mean you're giving uh people this gift to their their sense of hearing and and the ambient noise that is on the pilgrimage H how are you impacted by sounds like can you easily recall sounds that you've heard along your pilgrimages i hear sound all all the time best thing about COVID was the silence here because there was no noise coming from i live just at the side of a, a, a small valley. There's no traffic. Suddenly you could hear all, all the insects and all the birds and all the, that's, an, that's another part that happens in pilgrimage. I grew up in a city. I grew up in Amsterdam. And where I live is not very urban. It's, it's a small town, but there's always people around. When you go on pilgrimage, you realize that urban centers are actually minute compared to the expanse of the actual countryside. Countryside goes on forever. And especially in the Via Francesca, and, and I'm sure now when I'm going to head to, you know, stretches in Turkey, when I'm going to Jerusalem next, I'm not going to meet anybody sometimes for days. And those are the real challenges because when you talk to people who do the Camino, what do they always talk about is the meseta where you don't see anybody for five hours or whatever it is but like you get to see people at least once a day you know once you head into those little valleys with those dips but i remember that feeling of seeing the meseta first and thinking okay <laughs> there's nothing there uh, and then in Italy, it goes on and on and on and on. And for hours, there's nothing there. Just those straight Roman roads. That's all there is. Sound, yeah. And then you hear your heart and you hear the breathing. And what, who I always hear is Sati. <laughs> Sati walking from the outskirts of Paris into Paris. And you hear the birds. And you hear the wind. The wind talks through the trees. And... And it all becomes one thing, the hedgerows that are perfectly, perfectly laid out. Like there isn't a flower arranger in the world who can do it that well. And then the blue in the sky, those clouds, the wind, whatever it hits, hear the traffic in the distance. It's perfection and it's all out there. Walking, so you're going to walk from your house in Ireland to Jerusalem. That's the plan. <laughs> Tell me about the route that you're planning to take. Well, originally I was going to go over the European Grand Eight, which goes from here in uh, southwestern Ireland, the most southern point in Ireland, uh, which is on the Cork Harry border. That's about three days walking from here, uh, all the way to Dublin. And then I would cross through England. But given, given Brexit with the harp, that might end up being an issue. So I have a fallout route. Uh, there is two possibilities. Uh, they've been talking about a route which goes from Cork, which is only two days walking from here, two, three days, I can be off the island. And that would bring me to France somewhere. So again, you know, uh, Bretagne, and I might take my time there because I got an email from somebody in, in uh, Belgium saying like, oh, we would love if you would come for a little while. Uh, and I'm planning then to go to the mouth of the Rhine. So Rotterdam, go to Amsterdam, obviously, because that's where I grew up. And there is a church there from where I would like to start that section. And that'll bring me over the ground, and then I'll go back onto the Grand Eight. Uh, that will bring me into Germany, Austria, Hungary, Bulgaria, Romania, Turkey. Uh, and it, it, I'll go as far as Vienna. And from Vienna, there's the Sultan's route, which will bring me to Istanbul. 
And from Istanbul, you can go, there is a route to Konya. And then after that, there is a whole plethora of, of different roads. I'm not really hung up on any of them. <laughs> Apart from the, the lower bit, uh, I definitely want to go to Esparta because from Esparta, I want to go to Karaman because that's where I'm going to uh, lay down, get ready for, for, the middle, for the Middle East, if it's possible at all. Like there is no, there is no telling, you know, there is no telling how that goes. But my dream route would be then from Karaman to cross into Syria for a 15 day walk to Lebanon, from Lebanon across through, so go along the coast, maybe a tiny bit in uh, towards the, the, the Golan Heights. And uh, there has been like, I don't know, this is, there is a, a maybe possibility that I can cross the border there. Um, and there will be people on the other side of the border and waiting for me. I don't, I don't know, that is all, I'll have to get, let me get to Karaman first, because that entire section may not be possible at all. There's another route where you, I would do the 15 days in Syria, going from on the coastal side uh, to Lebanon, from Lebanon, go up onto the heights and then go back down into Syria and then towards Jordan. Um, I, I'd rather not, I'd rather stay, my, my preferred route would, would be to stay in Lebanon. Uh, and then if none of that is possible, I'll have to go to the coast and get a boat to Cyprus and from Cyprus, take the boat to, uh, to, to Israel. There is, I, I think, I looked, at, I looked at all of them and I keep an eye on all of it and it all looks impossible. So it sounds like a really good challenge. I think the, the thing is, up to now, when I, when I left for the Camino, I was sure it was impossible. That what I was doing, <clears throat> that it just wasn't possible and I would never get through the Pyrenees. And then I got through the Pyrenees and I made it to Santiago. And then I went home and I thought, sure, there's people go missing in the Alps every year. In fact, you know, through that pass, 62 a year don't make it. They never go home. And I went through there on the 1st of July. I even got to climb through the ice. It was fantastic. And uh, I made it to Rome. So now I'm thinking, I'm wondering, what is it that is going to stop me? Because if none of that stopped me, because I found the Apennines harder than the Alps. But like, if none of that stopped me up to now, what is it that is going to stop me? There's bad people everywhere and there's good people everywhere. The biggest challenges now are the most recent developments, you know, that traveling has become really hard. But in theory, by next year, I should be able to cross the European mainland without any obstacles. And that would then you have to just deal with every obstacle as it goes. My, my thinking is, is that what I, what I would like, my dream is, are you listening up there, <laughs> is to be able to do the main thing for me is is to stay on the road to keep going until you get there and how i get there doesn't really matter I, my dad died after i came from back from rome and um rome was very much dedicated to him and he he was going to meet me at the end of the walk and he didn't show up and less than six months later he was gone and he left me something which i'm going to bring to Jerusalem so I don't really have you know it's non-negotiable now anymore I just have to get there but how that will go there's my dream and we will see what the what reality will hand me in the end of the day what is your final destination in Jerusalem uh the final <laughs> The final destination is the Wailing Wall. For me, the, the, the obviously I'm going to uh, I'm I'm going to the oh, what is it the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, I have to go to the Holy Sepulchre and then I have to go to the Wailing Wall. What's uh, at the Wailing Wall for you? That's what my what what my dad's wish was. My dad, in the end of his life, um, lost his faith. He lost his faith. After, after everything, he lost his faith. And instead of 
stopping praying, which he believed was a very, very powerful tool, was something he did every day, all day. Um, and I always thought that when he, when he, uh, when he, when he divorced my mother, that he would, that he would join an order because that's what he did. He prayed all day long. <laughs> if it, if it wasn't, a, if it wasn't a conversation about something religious, he was praying. But he didn't. He he got remarried and he left the church and he he started going to synagogue. I don't know exactly how that worked or how he how he but he believed, you know, that in the end of the day all the answers were in the old testament, I think. That's what he that was uh, yeah, that was a big thing for him. So when he died, he asked my brother if if he could ask me if I could do this one thing for him. So there you go, the wailing wall, it will have to be. And then the, the dream after that would be to walk back. So to take the boat to Cyprus, maybe do, do some walking in, in Greece. And I'd like to go back then over Southern Italy, uh, Napoli, go back to Rome, Rome, go to Assisi, Assisi, back to Santiago and from Santiago home and then I'll hang up. I'll hang up the harp. It would be, it would be by, you know, this is, this is the harp is here. This and is the, the harp has a name, right? Yeah, Sean. Sean. Sean the harp, yeah. I wanted him to be like, not, not something that, uh, as accessible as, as possible, something as generic as possible. He's a build in uh, Seattle. And I, I would love for him to be the only harp, you know, that I don't have to replace him somewhere along the road. That would be really good. But I think that as well, you know, between Ireland and, and Israel, the idea of bringing an Irish harp to Israel might not be a bad thing. I also think that as, uh, as we look at the streams of how, um, streams of people and thinking and, uh, and the way we see people, that when we break those streams of how people move, that is a really bad thing. So it's really necessary for people to travel in those directions. I know that the, the general advice is, is to stay away from areas where there is conflict, but there, is, there isn't conflict there because of people like me or, <laughs> or you. There is conflict there because of government and money and economics and power. And it is in our hands to, to, to keep realizing that on the ground, these are all just people like you and me. We're all just people. These are governments that are doing these things. So it's important for people like me to keep traveling in that direction. It seems like you mentioned uh, the, your the harp as being you, I mean, you 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 mentioned the biblical reference of David and and David's harp, and so it's interesting that you would be bringing Sean uh, to Jerusalem to the land where David lived, and it seems like a bit of a homecoming. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's how that's how I see it as well. And and there is this because in Ireland as well, like the the whole. The whole, like, I don't play traditional Irish harp, but it still, it stands for the same thing. It's the same symbol. It's, it is this idea of, you know, how, how in the, how in, in the medieval times, if you look at the map, you know, you have the world, you had Jerusalem there, there you go. So, and it is true, Santiago is the way of the stars. It is where we, where we can go to find out about all these, find out what our questions actually are. I don't think there are, uh, th there are a lot of insights to be had on the Camino. And Rome is, Rome is quite a serious walk. And even if you look at the people who are walking it now, it's a completely different group of people. It's mainly men over 55 who come from certain backgrounds and there seems to be a lot of duality. They're a very interesting, completely different group of people. Uh, and then it, it is like the, the man in, in the Moulin Eon uh, tells a story where, where he goes, he, he goes with the open question, you know, God, tell me what it is I have to do with my life. And he arrives in Santiago and he meets this girl and they, he says, listen, 
I have no answers. So I'll call you when I get home. And they decide to go on to Rome because he's not getting these answers. And in Rome, the same thing happens. And he meets this girl again in Assisi. He goes on to Jerusalem and there's still no answers. And he, they go to Alexandria and they meet her there. And he realizes that the answer was there all the time. And I think that story made me realize that I'm staring at the answers, all these things that go on inside of me and the expressions of my life, they're all the answer. So the fact that I play harp and that I'm able to carry the darn thing because it's heavy as well, uh, makes me the ultimate best candidate to do any of this. And it may seem really outlandish, but it really makes a lot of sense when you think about it long enough. I think that's I, I'd like to hear uh, a bit about the music that you play. Uh, is this, are these pieces that were composed by someone else? Are you composing your own music? And it sounds like that you have a repertoire that you are playing. And I would like to hear more about how you chose certain songs because it does seem that you are quite focused on the experience for the listener of the pieces. Yeah, well, it all has to make sense in, in the sense of a story. Yeah, like uh, I think that when, when we look at harp players in general, also in the Irish tradition and in the medieval tradition, they're the bringers of good news. They're the bringers of news. They are the ones who come and tell you the story of who slayed who and all of that. You know, we've got social media for that now and televisions and radio. So we're not, we're not, I, I don't think that people like me are, uh, we don't have to bring the news. No, we don't. No, not the news. I think that what, what the job is, is one to reflect society as it stands. That's what art is. And the other thing is, is to encourage people to uh, I, I think for me it is to encourage them to really, really go inside and have that look, to find that freedom. That freedom is out there uh, on, on, on those roots. We get the opportunity to find that freedom inside again and we can carry that home and then really apply it. That will change society for good. If we have enough people who have that awareness that it doesn't matter in the end of the day, that all of this was created for us or made in such a way for us to have whatever experience we want, whatever experience we want, not what is just given to us, but that if we're brave enough to walk out of whatever fears we have, this creation literally gives us whatever we need. The security, the freedom, wind in our hair, sunshine on our back, pair of good walking shoes. It's a miracle. It's a miracle, but we can't always see it. So my job is, is to help create that little bit of space where that awareness, if you've walked your 25 kilometers and you had your lentils with your fish, which is good for your legs and you had your few beers and your few finos. And then my job is, is to create a tiny little space where it can go, <gasps> that's what it is, that's what it is. So what I play are the songs and the tunes that belong to the stories that made me that pilgrim who was lucky enough to discover this. You know, there's many, there's many pilgrims like myself. There's many people who've gotten insights and and tell their stories and do things for other people, take them on walks or whatever. But I'm I'm that little 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 bit of music in the background that hopefully creates that space. So there is a song which is um, which was the favorite song of somebody who. The very first time I thought I was going to have a panic attack gave me a bed for playing at a party. And the only thing he wanted was that I play at the party and the next day that I play in the old folks home where his mother had died and could I play his mother's favorite song. So I always tell that story and I always play that song. The Minstrel Boy, I think, is the song 
that explains what it is that the harp actually does. The minstrel boy to war has gone. In the ranks of death, you'll find him. Uh, the words were by Thomas More, and it's traditional song. You hear it a lot on pipes in the north. Uh, then there is Old Skibbereen. Old Skibbereen literally is the place, it's 20 kilometers from where I live. So it's a place set up from where I'm from. Um, what is it? The, uh, the Old Irish Harper, which I didn't record, is, is a song that I would always sing, which I wrote, which I wrote the very first time that I walked out. And then there is, what is there? Down by the Glenside, which is the, the struggle, Down by the Glenside is about the struggle that Ireland has had and that we find within ourselves as well, etc. So, so all these, but most of them come from the Irish tradition. And then initially I was looking for Spanish music and I could only find South American music. So I, I put in uh, uh, some uh, dance music from the South American repertoire as well, so that it wouldn't just be heavy. <laughs> all the time, you know, not, not overwhelm people with too much. How can people listening find out about your pilgrimage to Jerusalem and follow what you're doing and, and uh, be able to hear your music? Um, I have a website, theflattenharper.com. And uh, you can follow me on Facebook, which is probably the most, Facebook and Twitter is the two places where I'm most active. I'm still learning about Instagram. <laughs> uh, I'm still learning. Um, yeah, I've been writing about uh, the walk to Rome, um, but it's going to be a very, very, very long work. So I've, uh, for now I'm working on 10 essays with answering the most common questions. The most, the, you know, I don't know, have you, you know, when you, when you come back from a, from, a, uh, from a pilgrimage, people go like, oh, I'd love to hear all about it. And you never, I actually never tell any of the story ever, you know, tiny, tiny, tiny bits of it. And I realized that the stories we always end up telling are the stories that answer the questions that people have. So, I realized that I just need to tell the most 10 most commonly told stories in my repertoire and just put them in a book and that will answer most of the questions that people have. And then I would love to actually finish the, the, the diary because I, I have something like 40 hours of footage, <laughs> five and a half thousand photographs. And I was hoping to make a, a, what I would love to do is actually have an exhibition of all of the photographs edited down to two and a half thousand with a few hours of footage in there and just have it run in a gallery for just to give people an impression of how intense this stuff is. Because you think, oh yeah, somebody has gone walking, but you, the thing with trips that are that prolonged when you go over 45 50, 90, 100 days, we forget that you never get to go home. You don't get a day off. Even if you have a day off, you don't have a day off because you're not home. You're not in your own bed. You're sleeping on somebody's floor or, you know, or in a, in a in hotels are definitely not the way to travel. You're better off being on a couch somewhere with somebody, but there is this constant hyper awareness because you're in new surroundings all the time and yeah it can be pretty pretty overwhelming so you can't really let go you can never really let go and just go like oh yeah no, this is lovely <laughs> this is lovely so it gets pretty intense yeah when are you planning to set out for jerusalem oh i i had hoped to leave this year, March. And then I looked at it again in June and it, I'm hoping for next year, March. And if not March, June, it really, really, it all looks like it's going to even out now for the time being. Um, the moment the borders are open, I'm, I'm vaccinated and I'll be off. Like, I, I, I worry about things like, where they're going to go like, oh, oh, you need to get a vaccination every year or something. That would be really bad news for somebody like me. Like that would really be not good. So I'm hoping that 
society really wants to get back to normal and is willing to accept whatever they need to do to do that. And that means that I can go back out. Now, if that doesn't happen within the year, I'm not going to postpone any longer than two, uh, two years at the most three. And that is just based on my, on my age. I have to call a limit somewhere. I'm 52 now. Uh, and I don't think I want to try an attempt after 55. So it, it's going to be a year to two year journey. So I'll have to go within the next two years. Otherwise, I, I don't, you know, strength is going to become an issue after that, I think. Uh, for now, I'm feeling strong, but you don't know. in A minor by Anya Bakker. You have just heard The Flouting Harper, hosted by Dr. Heather Warfield and produced by Jonah Bayer. Copyright 2021, all rights reserved. Thank you for listening to Meaningful Journeys. This program is supported in part by Antioch University, New England and the Meaningful Life Institute. We would love to connect with you on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter and Facebook, or by email, info at MeaningfulJourneys.net or our website, www.MeaningfulJourneys.net. We hope you will join us next time on our shared quest for meaning as we connect humanity one step at a time. <laughs>